have a theory that uh, no matter what key you sing in on earth, by the time it gets to heaven, it's a perfect melody. Thank goodness for that. I'm really thankful, uh, just to tell you as we get started, uh, last week at this time we, we were looking ahead to beginning the fall and getting children's church and everything in order. We had two slots that we were certain were filled in all of children's ministry. And this morning there is every slot filled with only a couple of exceptions because throughout the week people came in and uh, volunteered. And, and really this morning we had a bunch of people who are plugging in to children's ministry who've never done it before and lots of new folks. And I'm just, I'm just incredibly thankful for what you guys have done. And I'll remind you what I told you last week. You are in store for a blessing. It is a great thing, and you will be the recipient of the gift that you're giving as you invest in the lives of these kids. So thank you for, for doing that. Well, I wanted to ask you to, to think about something as we get started. Uh, have, have you ever sat down to visit with somebody who's really passionate about something? It might be their job or, or maybe a hobby. It could be uh, maybe a ministry or, or charity that they're involved in. But whatever it is, once they get started, <laughs> they can't hardly stop telling you about it. And it's with such with such passion and emotion, with such detail, that as you're listening to them, you can't help but get a little excited yourself. <laughs> For example, have you ever talked to somebody who really loves the game of golf? Have you ever done that? Talk to somebody who really loves the game of, of golf. Have, have you ever noticed how they can replay every shot they made on every single hole on a course they played six months ago? Right? Have you ever noticed that? Just listen to them tell you, you know, it was, the, it was the fifth hole. It was the first shot. I'm on the tee box. of probably a wind north, northeast, about eight to ten miles an hour. There's <laughs> a dog leg left. The, the dew was still fresh on the ground. And I hit this shot. It was a perfect draw. Round this tree just inside the fairway. Gave me the perfect shot into the next green. Did, did I tell you about that next shot to the green? Yeah. Every shot on every hole for a course that... Am I right, Nancy? Yes, you I'm right. But to be fair, I'm not picking on golfers because I think we're all like that. We all have things that we are passionate about. And just look around you and you'll see that represented here in our church family. Just talk to Wason Gerwig about politics. Talk to John Clemens about triathlons or rock climbing. Talk to Russell Thomason about... Well, anything. <laughs> I've, never met, I've never found a subject that he isn't passionate about. And I love that because that kind of excitement is contagious. Well, this morning I'm excited because we're going to begin a new series in the fall looking at Paul's letter to the Colossians. And what we're going to find, that this is the letter that speaks to his greatest passion. Once he gets started talking about the all-sufficiency of who we are in Christ, I don't think he ever stopped long enough to take a breath. This is his greatest passion. And as we step into this, I want you to be excited. I want you to look forward to this. This is going to be good. Really, really good. So before we open God's word and look at that together, let's uh, go to him in prayer. Father, we're excited. We are excited to open your word, to see 
the words that you breathed out and revealed to us for your good purposes in our lives in ways that bring you glory. And I know that this letter, among the many things that you gave us in your scripture, speaks so clearly to the sufficiency, the supremacy of Jesus Christ that we should be excited about what you have in store. So open our minds, open our hearts so that we can have ears to hear and eyes to see what you intend for us. And boy, I do pray, as, as always, that it wouldn't just be things we learn, but it would be lives we live, hearts that are changed because of the power of your Spirit working through us, through the inspiration of your Word. That's our prayer, Father. And we offer that to you this morning. Amen. As is customary, let me give you a little background to this letter as we get started. Uh, Colossians was written by Paul during his first imprisonment to Rome. And it's actually the same time he wrote the letter to the Colossians, he also wrote his letter to the Ephesians and his letter to Philemon. What's interesting about the, the letter of Colossians in comparison to those other two letters is that Colossians is actually a letter that Paul writes to a place that he's never been and to a people, for the most part, that he's never met. And Colossae was this small, almost kind of nondescript town about a 100 miles east of Ephesus in what is now modern-day Turkey. You can see it up there on the map. This is Paul's third missionary journey. And if you'll notice, Ephesus right there on the western side of Asia. And if you'll just go to the right... Uh, you'll see Colossae under Hierapolis and Laodicea. And you'll notice that the path that Paul took didn't pass through that city. As I mentioned, Paul did write a letter to the Ephesians at this same time. Ephesus was, in fact, a place that that Paul has been and and that he was very familiar with. Apparently, there were two men who lived in this small town of Colossae who traveled to the big city of Ephesus to hear Paul preach one day. Their names were Epaphras and Philemon. And it was these two men, after hearing the good news of the gospel and surrendering their life to Christ, having been so moved by the message of hope that they heard, that they then returned to Colossae, the place where they lived, to to plant a church that first began meeting in Philemon's home under the leadership of Epaphras. See, Epaphras ended up being a man who was discipled by Paul. In fact, we learn in this letter as we go through it that Epaphras was actually with Paul while he was imprisoned in Rome. And very likely, much of what he reported to Paul is the basis of this letter to the Colossians that Paul writes. As we will see, Paul is encouraged to hear of the, the growth of this Christian church and the foundation of their faith in Christ. But he's also concerned as they are being distracted by false teachers who are calling their faith into question. We really don't know a lot about who exactly these people were or even exactly what this false teaching was. We get hints of that throughout the letter, but nothing real specific. And so for that reason, as you might expect, scholars have a lot of opinions about what was going on during this time that Paul writes his letter. Some suggest that these were an early form of what was, would later become known as Jewish Gnosticism that promoted the, the pursuit of a special knowledge. But this knowledge was more philosophical than it was 
theological. It had more to do with what they could reason in their mind than it did with what was revealed in Scripture. And it came combined with all kinds of of rituals and traditions and special restrictions in diet and what you eat and what you shouldn't eat. The real danger of this heresy was the priority that it gave to man's wisdom and ability to achieve spiritual maturity based on the pursuit of knowledge and a pious lifestyle. And let me tell you, these were people that would have looked apart. These were super spiritual folks that you might even look at and say, hey, I kind of want to be like him. I kind of want to be like her. But their lifestyle promoted more of an independence from Christ than a reliance upon him. It magnified the abilities of man and minimized the sufficiency of Christ. Kind of focus on what they were doing for him instead of what he had done in them. And what Paul does is he writes to counter this false teaching and he speaks to just the opposite. In fact, it's my opinion that there is no book in the Bible that gives a more comprehensive picture of the deity and supremacy of Christ than Colossians. Paul goes to great lengths to magnify the sufficiency of who we are in Christ and to clarify the reality of who we are apart from Him. He will explain that spiritual maturity is not a work of man. It is a work of God through faith in Christ as we are transformed by the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. The false teachers taught that that Christianity was Jesus plus something. And Paul will come in and say, no, it's Jesus plus nothing. He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. Jesus plus nothing. Let me tell you on the front end why I think this is important for us today. You see, the the faith of the Colossians, as we will learn as we go through this letter, is being called into question. They were more distracted by those who suggested that Christianity needed to be more relevant in the culture. They needed to be more open to new ideas and, and new philosophies. And Paul recognized that they were being, as he said, deluded by persuasive arguments that took the focus from Christ and shifted it to issues, ideas, traditions. In fact, I believe the main reason that we don't know more about who these people were and what they might have said is because Paul refused to get caught in that endless argument. It was these debates that became the distraction that caused the Colossians to become insecure in their faith, not really understanding or or knowing or standing on what they believed to be true. And they began to compromise their convictions by catering to what he calls the elementary principles of the world. And so Paul's main goal was to shift the attention of the Colossian church from these philosophical debates to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Paul wanted the Colossians to understand that their Christian walk was not based on human reasoning or religious rules, but on a clear understanding of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. 
And this is a message that we desperately need to hear in our world today. Especially, let me speak to you specifically, students and young people. Because I'm convinced that what you will face in your lifetime will be tenfold what we have faced in ours as adults. You see, we live in a world that will consistently call into question what you believe as a Christian. We live in a culture that that feasts, I mean, gorges itself on philosophical debates and endless arguments about issues that people have determined to be what's most important in our society today. Just like we see in Colossians, human ideas are reformulating biblical truths. And increasingly, we are giving more priority to reason than we are to what has been revealed in Scripture. Let me just tell you, I believe that the Bible is not our greatest influence in our society today. It's not. It's talk shows like Oprah. It's Internet news. It's, it's blogs. It's all the social media. That's the greatest influence in our society today. And we are at great risk, like the Colossians, of allowing these distractions to disrupt our faith to the point that we begin to compromise our convictions and cater to the pressures of our culture. We need to hear Paul's reminder that the Christian walk is not based on human reasoning or religious rules, but on a clear understanding of the all-sufficiency of who you are in Christ. You and I, we need to be really convinced. I mean really convinced that it truly is Jesus plus nothing. That everything we need is found in a passionate pursuit of knowing Him and understanding who we are because of what He has done. And not what we do. Fix your eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith. With that in mind, let's dive into this together. So go ahead, if you haven't already done so, turn to Colossians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. I'd love for you to find this in your Bible and read it. But if you have a different version than I have, I have New American Standard. I have it written up here so you can follow along with me if you would like. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. In these first two verses, I believe we see Paul modeling what he will soon ask the Colossians to practice. He centers their attention on Christ, and he makes it clear that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. That there are no special privileges or positions of power. He begins by clarifying that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and not because of his own accomplishments. See, Paul had every opportunity to stand above other Christians because of his authority as an apostle. He could have stuck his chest out at these false teachers and said, 
This is what it looks like to be elite. This is what it is because I am an apostle. But that's not what he did. Instead of setting himself apart, he wants the Colossians to know that he stands with them as a brother in Christ. Even Timothy, Paul's child in the faith, serves with Paul as a partner in ministry, a different role, but but Paul validates him to have equal value in the ministry of the gospel. He affirms the, the faith of the Colossians, and he speaks to them as one who is well acquainted with their situation, praying for them, as we will see, on a regular basis. Paul seems to be very intentional in his encouragement of the Colossian church as he lays the groundwork for his instruction and begins to turn their focus from the distractions to the common ground of who they are in Christ. Look at what he says in in verse 3. He says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, which was previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world. Also, it has constantly been bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it. And understood the grace of God in truth. I want you to notice here as we begin in this section that that Paul's affection for the Colossians was based on the faithfulness of his prayers. And the pronouns that he uses are plural. We give thanks. It tells me that Paul probably joined with with Timothy Timothy as they, they prayed together for these believers in Colossae. So Paul and and Timothy are not standing from a distance and and speaking to a church based on their position or their obligation. No, they've actually entered into the lives of these people that they are now speaking to through the faithfulness of their prayers. They cared so much about the Colossian church because they prayed for them so often. They cared so much for the Colossian church because they prayed for them so often. And in these prayers, they consistently give thanks to God for the foundation of their faith in Jesus Christ. This was important because no matter what the problems may have been going on within the Colossian church, no matter what those influences were outside of the church, Paul knew that as he looked to those people, that as long as they were grounded in that faith in Jesus Christ, they would endure. As long as he was the object of their faith, They would persevere. Because really, if you think about it, and I've mentioned this before, and I believe it to be true, we are all people of faith. In fact, across the globe, no matter what you believe in, we are all people in faith. We believe in something. It is the object of our faith that distinguishes us. And Paul was encouraged Because he knew that these were people who understand that Jesus Christ was the hope of their salvation. Jesus was the object of their faith. See, God is holy. And our sinful rebellion is an unforgivable sin. Have you ever thought about that? I want you to think about it. God is holy. And our sinful rebellion is an unforgivable sin. 
from the standpoint that there is nothing that we can do to appease God's wrath and righteous judgment for our sinful decisions. We simply cannot get our act together, clean up our life, and and just start making better choices to be at peace with God. Scripture says we are dead. Dead in our trespasses and sins. And our only hope is the gospel truth that Jesus took the punishment that we deserved when he gave his life on the cross. That's why scripture tells us that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's a great exchange. Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And only when we put our trust in Him, only when Jesus becomes the object of our faith and not the things that we do, only then can we be reconciled to God. Because you cannot serve two masters. (laughs) Scripture tells us that you will either hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. And Paul looked at this Colossian church and he tells them that, that he's encouraged since he heard of their faith. Now, I want you to think about for that, that, that statement for just a second. How, how do you hear of someone's faith? Is it as simple as, hey, I heard Ron became a Christian. Is that what it means? I don't think so. I, I think there's much more to it. I think Paul was encouraged by the faith of the Colossian church because they were consistently being conformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. He was encouraged because of the evidence of transformed lives. It was not simply a prayer they prayed. It was a life they lived. He heard of their faith. As people like Epaphras described how they were conducting themselves within the body of Christ. And one of the evidences, as we see in verse 4, was the love which they had for all the saints. Brotherly love is one of the evidences of a genuine faith. If you think about what Jesus said to his disciples, you'll remember he said, they will know you are my disciples. How? Because of your love for one another. Brotherly love. But it's important to understand that that the love that Jesus speaks of in this context is not your average love. It's a love, as, as Paul writes about, that seeks the needs of someone else is more important than your own. It's what Jesus is speaking to when he talks about the love that compels you to lay down your life for your friends. This is a divine love that does not exist in the heart of man. And that's important to understand. You see, our love is plagued with self-interest. Even though we may do kind things that give the appearance of love in and of ourselves, they are always tainted with self-interest. They always have a question in the back of their mind of, of what's in it for me. But God's love, God's love, on the other hand, is always motivated because of self-sacrifice. This quality of love originates in God and can only be experienced through a relationship with God by faith in Jesus Christ. That's why this quality of love validates our faith, because it's only experienced through the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. 
we do not possess this quality of love outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. This next weekend, I'll be officiating a wedding for Sarah McCartney. Looking forward to that. And one of the things that I'm going to do is make the point that I just made to you. Because I believe it, that understanding is the foundation of a biblical marriage. I'll point out that the, the vows that they make to one another do not include any ifs. Right? I promise to love and to cherish you if. It's not there. It's not there. Because God's love, the basis of all Christian relationships, is not contingent upon the other person being able to hold up their end of the bargain. God's love is marked by self-sacrifice and flows out of an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. And it is the trademark characteristic of our faith. And as Paul says in verse 5, we are motivated to love in this way because of the hope that is laid up for us in heaven. It's like John said, we love because he first loved us. We love others out of the overflow of our love for Jesus Christ. We give only out of the richness of what we have received from Him. We don't possess it apart from Him. And Paul was encouraged by their faith that was evidenced in their love, that found its source in the hope of their relationship with Jesus Christ. But then in verse 6, he goes on to describe even more evidence of their faith. He says that it's constantly bearing fruit and increasing. Even as it has been, he says... Since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. And in other words, their lives were constantly being transformed by the power of the gospel, the same power of the gospel that saved them. This is important because they are not people who said, I believe in Jesus without any change in their lifestyle or decisions. No, when you looked at the Colossian church, you saw old things that were gone. And new things that were come. You saw new creations in Christ. As they submitted to the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Paul is encouraged. Because of their faith in Christ. Their love for all the saints. Their hope in Christ's return. And the ongoing evidence of the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And I want you to know. That's a picture of what genuine faith looks like. That's what it looks like. And it all began, don't miss this, it all began through the testimony of just one person. Look at verse 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he has also informed us of your love in the spirit. Epaphras went to Ephesus. He believed in the message of the gospel. He returned to his home in Colossae and he began to, to plant seeds through his testimony of faith. See, Epaphras brought the message, uh, the spirit brought the conviction, and the people were saved by their faith in Christ alone. One man. And from his testimony, God built his church. It took only one man who was willing to be faithful and God did all the rest. And so the next time that you try to convince yourself 
that your testimony of faith wouldn't really make all that much difference in the life of someone else. I want you to remember Epaphras. And I want you to be reminded of the power of one. One person. God can do great things with only a mustard seed of faith. And what he did through Epaphras, he can do through you. The power of one. As we finish up this morning, one of the things that I hope that you will notice and begin to appreciate is how much the study of what we will see in the life of the Colossian church is is very much like our own as well. Here we are, this small little church in what some would consider the wasteland of West Texas, right? But we, like the Colossians, are people who have been set apart by God, who come together based on the common ground of our faith in Jesus Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Christ whose lives give evidence of the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. It is our testimony of faith that plants seeds of the the good news of the gospel in the places where we live and, and work and play, where a harvest of faith can begin out of the testimony of just one person, one person willing to be faithful to God. Like the Colossians, we live in a world that increasingly calls our faith into question. Our society is one that invites us to compromise our convictions by using man's wisdom to reformulate biblical truths. You see, who we are and who they were are really not all that different. In fact, this could be Paul's letter to the Lubbockites. (laughs) And I'd really like for you to, to read it that way and from that perspective. For example... Based on what we learned this morning, let me encourage you, let me encourage all of us to strive to be that people who are identified by Paul's trademark trilogy, faith, love, and hope. A focus that is upward, outward, and forward. It's upward as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Here we look to Christ's past work on the cross as we stand together as a people who believe that who we are is based on what he has done. As Paul will later explain in his letter that that who we are in Christ means that everything that is true for him is also true in us. He will talk about how his death is our death. His burial is our burial. His resurrection is our resurrection. His victory is our victory. Everything that is true for Christ is true in us. That's why Paul said, as Doug reminded us last week, that we have a righteousness that is not our own, derived from the things that we might do. But instead, our righteousness is actually the righteousness of Christ which comes from God on the basis of faith. We are completely sufficient in Christ alone. Jesus plus nothing. Our focus is upward as we are united together through our faith in Jesus Christ. But we also look outward as we care for the needs of others as more important than our own. This is the evidence of Christ's continued work in our daily lives as we 
love one another as it flows out of the love that we have in our relationship with him. And one of the things that I see in this passage that I, that I think is significant is one of the, the most important evidences of this kind of love is through your prayer life. Both from experience and from the testimony of Scripture, we see that a heart grows closer to those for whom and with whom we regularly pray. That's why I often ask people who are in the midst of marriage difficulties, one of the first questions I'll ask do you guys pray together? Do you pray together? And if they don't, I urge them to begin to do so. Because I believe that prayer causes us to be emotionally connected with those for whom and with whom we regularly pray. And I think we see evidence of that fact in our passage this morning as Paul has an obvious affection for the Colossian church with whom he's never met. Because of his prayers. Faith, our upward focus on Christ. Love, our outward focus on one another. And hope, looking forward to what is to come. This is the part of the trilogy that recognizes that this world is not our home. This world is not our home. It's that part of us that teaches us not to love the world nor the things of the world. As John reminds us, this world is passing away with all its lusts. But the one who does the will of God, he says, lives forever. We look forward as our lives are transformed in our daily pursuit of Christ, becoming more like Christ as we draw closer to the day of his return. It reminds me of a running commercial. I don't think it exists anymore but you may remember it where this guy's running down the street and he's covered up with all kinds of burden and things on his mind to the point that that you really can't tell that there's a person underneath all the stuff but as he's running this stuff is is falling off right until eventually he's free of everything that had been on his mind well the same is true for us we are running a race of faith fixing our eyes on jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. Laying aside, the scripture tells us, every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. And the more we move toward heaven, the less we are attached to this world. Because if Christ has set you free, listen to me, you are free indeed. If Christ has set you free, you are free indeed. So run. Run the race of faith. Looking upward, setting your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Looking outward as you consider how to encourage each other towards love and good deeds. Looking forward to the day of his return as we experience the reward of our redemption in him. Faith, love, and hope. Jesus plus nothing. What a message. I pray that you live it this week. Let's pray together. God, that is our prayer as we open up such a great, great study of who we are in you because of who you are and the supremacy creator in whom all things were created. All things are held together. Father, this week, may we be those people that is described in these verses of a people of of faith whose object of our faith is not on things that we must do or or things that we must perform. May we not look the part without living the life. 
May we be people of God who give evidence of our faith through the transformation of the Holy Spirit within us. May we love one another with a love that's not of this world. It's not seeking to do things for someone else to be able to get something in return. But instead, may we consider the needs of someone else as more important than our own. And I pray that this week we would be a people of prayer. That we would express that love through the faithful commitment of our prayers. It may be a prayer for somebody who's in need. It may be a prayer for somebody we need to forgive. It may be a prayer for somebody who doesn't know you. May we be a people of prayer. And ultimately, Father, may all this be based on the hope of who we are in you, the expectance of your return. And as we look around the events that a world that is happening around us today, how can we not but be convinced that it must be soon? It must be soon. But that's okay because our hope is in you. And someday, someday, perhaps soon, you will come and you will call those who have surrendered their life to you to be resurrected, where your resurrection becomes our resurrection, your victory becomes our victory, your life eternal becomes our life eternal. That is our hope. And we live in that hope, Father. May we be that people. Faith, love, and hope. Jesus plus nothing. I pray this in the supreme in holy name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.